I'm Doug Storm. Welcome to Interchange. This is the finale of our series, A Targeted Divide. It's called What Bullets Do to Bodies and Lives, Structural Violence, Firearms, and Surviving Gunshot Wounds. Yeah, I was on that corner, trying to get my coins up. Coppers run up on us and we turn a Jackie Joyner. White man kill a black man, they never report us. Black man kill a white man, they gonna start a war. Our opening song is Young Black America by Meek Mill, off of the 2017 album Wins and Losses. Robert Rameek Williams, known professionally as Meek Mill, is an American rapper and songwriter. Raised in Philadelphia, he began his music career as a battle rapper. We know a lot about gun homicide, much less about what life is like for the wounded living. What happens to those who get shot but live? How does the arc of their lives bend? And what are the roles of race, poverty, and opportunity in all of this? Joining us tonight for this special 90-minute program is Ju Young Lee, an assistant professor of sociology at the University of Toronto. He's the author of Blowing Up, Rap Dreams in South Central, an ethnographic study on the careers of aspiring rappers from Los Angeles. And he's currently working on a book with the tentative title, Ricochet, Another ethnographic study, this one on the individual and community health effects of gunshot victimization in Philadelphia. Our program covers a lot of ground, but chiefly we're interested in common misconceptions about gun violence, as portrayed in the media, that includes Hollywood and the music industry, as well as in policy prescriptions. Just telling my story, guts, no glory, been going on before me. With slaves in the 40s, still slaves in the present. No toys for Christmas, and get us no presents. Only made us evil, made us hungry, made us desperate. Youngin' in the ninth grade, he got a Smith and Wesson. Grew up with the goons, now he need protection. He dropped out of school, then he got arrested. Lord, with a blessing. I just we are daily confronted with false or misleading representations of gun violence in the U.S. There's the glamorized movie version that romanticizes the gunshot victim who survives as a kind of hero, a tough with street cred. There's the perception that mass shootings with semi-automatic weapons are the major consequence of gun culture, and that gunshot victims primarily die. We'll dispel all of these tonight. We'll also look at the way healthcare institutions further victimize those wounded by bullets by assuming they deserve the injury. This pervasive moralism further exacerbates the pain of living with the after effects of being shot by literally withholding proper pain control medication and follow-up treatment for complications and psychological trauma. To start, Ju Young Lee tells us about how his first project, studying rap culture in LA, opened up a view into the world of the gunshot victim when one of his subjects, Flawless, got shot. Watching what Flawless went through led to his second project, studying lives lived after a bullet rips apart the body and the identity. How one goes about that kind of research is important to clarify. This is the work of ethnography, or as Lee calls it, deep hanging out, a kind of extended journalism. The goal being to challenge the prevailing understanding of a phenomenon. And now... What Bullets Do to Bodies and Lives, with Ju Young Lee, on Interchange, on WFHB. Ju Young Lee, welcome to Interchange. 
Thanks for having me. Now, uh, you've done field work in a Philadelphia hospital and among rappers in L.A. In both places, you've documented violence and its aftermath. Do you mind briefly describing your projects, the, the respondents, uh, your research aims? Uh, my first study was actually set in Los Angeles, and this was when I was a graduate student at UCLA. And I began to study hanging out at a weekly hip-hop open mic workshop in South Central LA called Project Blowed. And Project Blowed, for those who don't know, is or was, I should say, uh, a, a very historic training ground for aspiring rap artists in South Central LA. And um, young men and young, some young women from neighborhoods around um, this area called Lamert Park would come out every Thursday night and freestyle with each other. They would perform um, songs to a crowd of peers. And basically, it was a trial-by-fire, peer-review type of setting. So if the crowd didn't like you or they didn't think your performance was up to par, they would chant you off stage by saying, please pass the mic over and over again until basically you lost confidence and the DJ turned the music off. Um, now, in the course of doing that work, I started following – uh, many of the young men around in their everyday lives. And one of the people that I met is a guy who goes by the rap name Flawless. And Flawless got shot in the middle of this field work. And his experiences surviving the shooting and living with a bunch of different health problems in the aftermath got me thinking much more broadly about gun violence. Um, and so after I finished that project, which became my first book, which is called Blowing Up, Rap Dreams in South Central, I went to a postdoctoral fellowship at the University of Pennsylvania. And this was funded by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Um, and it was a, it's a fellowship that was basically training people to become health scholars. And at that point, I hadn't really done any real health research or had any training in health. Uh, but I was curious about it because I had seen how much um, this one person's life changed after he got shot. Um, and so in that study, I, I began, you know, with the broad question really w was, you know, what happens to people after the shooting? You know, what, how did their lives change and how do they cope with the various physical and, you know, mental changes that they experience um, and I started that study in the hospital. I was just hanging out. I was hanging out in the outpatient trauma clinic at the University of Pennsylvania Hospital, which is a trauma one hospital. Um, I think aside from the Temple University Hospital, it, it serves the vast majority of gunshot victims in, in, the, in Philadelphia County. And I was in an exam. I would basically just set up shop in an exam room. And I would interview patients who were coming back to the hospital weeks and sometimes even years after when they got shot. And I would often just, you know, try to understand what uh, their lives had been like after they had left the hospital. And so that's the that's the study that I'm writing up now into a second book, uh, which is tentatively titled Ricochet. Um, and it's all about sort of what happens to people after they get shot and they survive. I'm Doug Storm on Interchange. Our show is What Bullets Do to Bodies and Lives with guest Ju Young Lee of the University of Toronto. It's a 90-minute special and the final show of our gun series, A Targeted Divide.
Woke up this morning hearing shots below my project window. The TV's on for playing all night on Nintendo. Now, uh, Young, uh, this is um, what is called an ethnography. Your research is ethnographic. Can you describe what that means to us? Yeah, sure. So ethnography is basically uh, a systematic process of documenting people's lives. It's sort of like a, a deep kind of journalism. So where journalists might go into a community and sort of, you know, follow people around for a day or two, get some interviews. Uh, ethnographers tend to spend at least a year with the people that they write about. And um, oftentimes they spend many more years. My first study was a five-year project. And then the second study set in Philadelphia was a two-year study. Um, and the reason behind that is that we often want to know how people change over time. And, um, you know, a, another reason for why we want to spend so much time with people is that there's this suspicion that, you know, when you first meet a person, you're not really meeting the person. You're getting, you're, you're meeting their representative in a sense. Uh, you're kind of getting a very partial window into who that person is and how they live their lives. Uh, but over time, the belief in ethnography is that you get to see a person in many different social settings. You get to see them in interactions with different people and you can, you know, construct a much more robust portrait of who they are and the kinds of things that they experience. So ethnography is really just, a, you know, some people call it deep hanging out, um, deep journalism. Um, but yeah, it's really this process of just participating in and observing people's everyday lives. Does um, some, in some ways, um, I don't want to say implicate you, but you uh, become something of the process itself, right? You can't, I guess you can't go into it without the sense that you're likely going to change in some way yourself as, as an ethnographer, right? Exactly. Yeah. So ethnography, you know, a big part of what we do as well is we, we write about ourselves as part of the study. Uh, we, there's this you know, it's very understood and explicit in ethnography that what we're doing is not uh, objectively documenting a, a person's social life. We understand that different people as ethnographers, because of who they are and the kinds of biographies and the experiences that they bring to the table, are able to gain access in different ways to people's lives. And one of the things I've always encountered, because I'm a Korean-American dude, um, and I've historically been studying you know different issues that are unfolding in urban black communities people always wonder like how did you you know sort of get into this stuff or how did they respond to you and i found over over these two studies that being a racial ethnic outsider has served me well because in different in different moments, people have been very curious about why I was coming around to their neighborhood, why I was hanging out with somebody that they knew. And, and I was obviously somebody who didn't look like I was from the community. And this, you know, would often lead to people coming up to me in, in different public settings and asking me what I was doing. And when I told them that I was an ethnographer, I would often get these kind of confused looks. Um, and I would explain to them what I do is kind of like documentary filmmaking, except um, I'm writing about the stuff that I see and that I learn in the end and not, you know, recording it in that same way. It's time for a break. This is Block Episode by Master Ace from the 2001 album Disposable Arts. 
When we come back, we'll discuss the little-known statistic that 80% of gunshot victims survive. Stay with us for more with Ji Young Lee when Interchange returns. Woke up this morning hearing shots below my project window. The TV's on for playing all night on Nintendo. Jump out of bed trying to see what's up with all the noising. I see somebody else caught a case of lead poison. This type of around my way is a regular recurrence. Because the same just happened to my nigga Terrence. A week later now, somebody else is laying dying. Surrounded by a crowd of people and his mama crying. The way he's laying there, it looks to me like Dukes are gonna. I seen the cats who just did it run around the corner. I start to wonder who it is and why they had to wet him. I bet I knew him or at least I bet I probably met him. I can't pretend that I'm shocked like electrocution. Cause any night, there could be an execution. My mama told me that that thug to get you buried. The next day, there's your name in the obituary. I ask her why we gotta live in this environment. She said your grandfather drank up his retirement. Plus when I around and had you, I was just a baby. Just maybe if I wasn't being this lady. Things could have been a little bit better Through all my jeans and my double-knit sweater I hit the block trying to find out who got done in Who had the gun in Who that was I seen running Another body on the ground cold And another day another lost soul And same in every zip code No matter where you go It's just another block episode Another story on the street told And another turn down the wrong road And sit back and watch it unfold Yo, I let you know Yo, I roam the streets with my peeps and a gun by my crotch. I got beef with this cat that resides on my block. He getting popped. I swear when I see him, it's on. He'll just be a tattoo on his best friend's arm. My friend screaming, punch, be calm. Y'all can save it. He bought five G's two months ago. Still Welcome back to Interchange. In this segment of What Bullets Do to Bodies and Lives, Ju Young Lee tells us that only one in five gunshot victims are killed by that bullet. Most gun violence is daily, as are the effects of that violence. But media paints a different picture, sensationalizing what is uncommon to the detriment of our understanding of the problem. I'm not in the laugh that I keep a bad temper. I hit him, a bystander, and one of his crew members. Now, uh, would you say that you you have an intention as an ethnographer to uh, to sort of complicate those uh, that receive your research? You know, somebody that reads your work, you want to complicate their perspective on the topic you're addressing. Yes, exactly. And I would say that one of the main contributions of ethnographies and the reason why we do them is because you you want to challenge a prevailing understanding of a community of of a phenomenon um you know your your starting point is basically that you know people have a general understanding of a phenomenon but you have a suspicion that they haven't got the whole story right that if you were to follow people around in the most mundane kinds of everyday activities you would be able to see that their lived experiences are, you know, sometimes very different from the ways that we talk about them in, you know, public policy or even in like journalism and news media. Um, and in a more kind of, I guess, critical sense that people have really gotten it wrong. So there, there always is this kind of underlying suspicion that you as the ethnographer, because you're, you're committed to being there with people and getting close to them, that you'll be able to get a, a much deeper look and analysis at what they go through. You get sort of a behind the scenes look. 
So there, yeah. you know, there's this, there's the Tom Wolf side of journalism, and I would, I would argue that I, I suppose Tom Wolf thought he was a deep journalist of some kind. But there's the Tom Wolf side, which is clearly um, biased in the Tom Wolf perspective, right? Tom Wolf goes into places so he can tell you what Tom Wolf thinks about them, and there's, there's a different, there's clearly something else going on in your work. You're, you're deeply affected by what you see. Yes, I think so. And I think that's a very astute uh, distinction between, you know, people who would call themselves like deep journalists or new journalists and the ethnographer. Um, and, you know, the same critique might even be leveled at Hunter S. Thompson, who, uh, you know, was also a new journalist. Um, you know, in those kinds of studies um, or those books, in fact, you get a sense of what's going on in these communities, but you also get much more of an emphasis on the author. The author is in many ways kind of front and center in the analysis and in the storytelling. Um, ethnographers are also put themselves into the story, but at the end of the day, what we're doing is not necessarily autoethnography or just writing about our own experiences. You know, we're really trying our, in, in a, you know, using all of our best tools to, to document um, other people's lives. And the, the end goal, and this is sort of the litmus test, I think, is when you finish writing up your results and you, you, you put it all together into an article or a book, um, the people in the study should be able to read the book and recognize and, and confirm that you got it right. And I think that's all ultimately one of the things that ethnographers you know, strive to do because, you know, at the end of the day, we want to make sure that we got it right and that the people feel as if we, we you know, we did due diligence in representing their life. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Ju Young Lee joins us to discuss the effects of bullets and bodies and the lives of the 80% of gunshot victims who survive and why we only hear about the 20% who are killed. Let the trigger finger put the pressure to the mechanism which gives a response for the automatic click to release projectiles and single file. So let's jump into that second project that you're working on and that you're work- writing up uh, into the tentatively titled Ricochet. Um, so what, what we discover in your writing is that there is a lot of uh, research on gun homicides that we know a lot about homicides, but much less about the the sort of effects of gunshots, uh, gunshot victims who don't die from homicide. It's true. Uh, you tell us that most people actually that get shot don't die of gunshots. Yeah, and this is one of the most surprising things for me, at least when I when I started doing this study. So back when I was doing my first study, um, Flawless got shot and. You know, news got out about his shooting. His brother posted something on social media. And at that point in my life, I had never met anybody who had been shot before. Um, and I was under the assumption that when you get shot, it's sort of like what happens in the movies. You, uh, you know, you, you die. And that's kind of the, the story we see over and over again. And it's something that's reinforced by the news media. We, we get a lot of stories about a fatal shooting or even a mass shooting. And over and over again, we see this kind of recurrent narrative about getting shot as a death sentence. Um, but then I was you know, digging around in some data, and I was surprised to find that Flawless's experience of surviving a shooting was not that uncommon, that in fact, 
you know, the NIH, National Institute of Health, had estimated at that time that about only one in five um, gunshot victims were were fatal, meaning that, you know, roughly around 80% of the people who are getting shot in drive-by shootings, armed robberies, you know, domestic disputes and so forth would end up living to see another day. And that sort of blew my mind. And I thought, you know, so what's what's really happening with all these other people who survive? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, why, I guess uh, quickly or briefly, let us know uh, that that more obvious part, I guess, or the more uh, reported part of it, homicides. One, you can tell us a little bit about the actual statistics on gun homicides, and then maybe speculate on why why it's so prevalent that that we hear about the homicides more than anything else. Sure. So in the United States, um, and this, the, the numbers sort of vary, but if you go back to about 2010, um, 2014, the numbers vary quite a bit, but there's usually between about 8,000 gun homicides upwards to about 11,000, 12,000 gun homicides in any given year over the last, you know, seven, eight, nine years. Um, and, I think that there's not a lot of attention on the non-fatal victims uh, because, you know, their stories of a person who survives a shooting aren't as sensational. Um, you know, the news media, for example, you know, have the, has that kind of old adage, if it bleeds, it leads. Right. And I think that there's more public interest in the stories where there are, you know, multiple victims in a shooting, a mass shooting, those get – you know, the most attention, uh, even though they're a very small percentage of, of total shootings. Um, but yeah, I think that a lot of it has to do with, you know, the notion that one, the news media gravitates to the most tragic accounts of violence and, you know, gun homicides are, are perceived as worse than non-fatal shootings, even though non-fatal victims, you know, suffer greatly after they get out of the hospital. Um, and I think, too, there's, you know, homicide in general, I think, is seen as the, the general metric for, you know, how well a society is doing or not doing in terms of controlling the crime problem. Hmm. Um, and, yeah, I think, I think assaults, non-fatal assaults just don't have the same kind of sensational aura about them. Mm-hmm. And so I think they get kind of lost. Like if there's a on the weekend, if there's a fatal shooting and two people die in a, in a nightclub or at a, a block party, that will get more attention than, you know, a string of non-fatal shootings where the person might just live with a bullet in their leg. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that there's a lot of this kind of uh, sensationalism around fatal shootings. It's interesting that it seems like, you know, that sensationalism certainly serves to undermine our knowledge of the everyday facts of gun violence. Yeah. Big time. I mean, it's it creates, uh, you know, it reinforces the the Hollywood cinematic, you know, representations of shootings. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we see fatal shootings on this on the silver screen, mm-hmm. and when we, you know, go on to our news feeds or when we, you know, turn on the the news, the nightly news, the stories that lead are really the ones that where you know people are dying, right. but. Uh, many more are living, and I think that's one of the big goals of this study is to mm-hmm. shine a light on that population. Mm. It's time for a break. This is Stray Bullet by Organized Confusion from the 1994 album Stress, The Extinction Agenda. When we come back, we'll find out who gets shot and discover the why 
that follows is more complicated than often presented. Let the trigger finger put the pressure to the mechanism which gives a response for the automatic. Click to release projectiles and single file causing me to ignite then travel through the barrel. Headed for the light at the end of a tunnel with no specific target in sight. Slow the flow like H2O water. Visualize the scene of a homicide or slaughter. No remorse for the course I take when you pull it. The results are straight bullet. Niggas are new, hit the ground, running and stay down. Except for the kids who played on the playground. Cause for some little girls, you'll never see more than six years of life. Strife, full bling, when she fell from the seesaw. But um, wait, my course isn't over. Flat out of the other side of my head, towards a red ring rover. Then I ricochet, fast pass above the sash. You damn what that nigga say? Off. Oh, next target's Margaret's face. And I struck it, now it's a flood of blood and circumference to a face And an abundance of brains all over the street Shame how we had to meet, dash and buck and greet by Family, they follow behind me in an orderly fashion Bashing through flesh and wild, crashing through the doors I project hallways to the fleck off of the tiles I'm coming for you, little girl Once inside, I shatter your world, swirl No more dreams, no hopes when I spray You better pray to the Pope or the Vatican Before I go right to Tadigan I'm mad again, brother, somebody smother will be sad again But whose blue skies will turn gray From the attack of the Mac 11, I'm astray Bullet Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. In this segment, Ju Young Lee gives us some particulars of his research in Philadelphia and the underlying presumption that some people's lives don't matter. And once again, the NRA and its ability to obstruct research comes into play. Blood losses, I shift across your chest. I rest, rupture on the slumptious lasher. A bush deliver faster. Blood pours, now it's up to the master boom. As they crash open the doors, fake me spray in the operating room. The body still consumes me. Who is getting shot? When you when you do this research, when you actually look into what is available uh, to research beyond your own field work, who is getting shot? The vast majority of non-fatal gunshot victims and even fatal gunshot victims are african-american men in the u.s Mm -hmm. and um there's a a tremendous um skewing towards their you know them being shot and so for example in philadelphia um you know african-americans comprise somewhere close to about 90 percent of both fatal and non-fatal shootings and the rates are a little lower overall for the United States, um, but you know, suffice it to say that black men who make up about six percent of the U.S. population um, account for the vast majority of fatal and non-fatal shootings. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's like a, a huge um, disproportionate representation when it comes to who's getting shot, mm-hmm. um, and you know, so the the initial, I guess impulse for many people when they hear that stat is to say, well, of course. So that just sort of feeds into a stereotypical view of inner city black men or black men living in disadvantaged neighborhoods, um, which is also where most of these shootings are clustered. They're not just randomly distributed in cities. They tend to be clustered in the poorest neighborhoods and the neighborhoods with the lowest rates of you know, college graduation with the highest rates of unemployment and joblessness. Like there's a, a number of these kinds of indicators and you can predict with a pretty good amount of certainty, like where um, the most kind of 
troubled areas will be in terms of gun violence rates. Uh, but one thing that I've discovered in my work in Philly is that, uh, you know, everyday life is fraught with danger in, in some of these places. And so you could be just a person who works a nine to five job and get caught in the wrong place at the wrong time. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the findings of this public health scholar named John Rich, who's uh, at Drexel University in Philadelphia. And I draw, you know, a lot from his work. He basically, you know, he interviewed a bunch of young African American men in Boston, and he finds the same thing that some of these people, some of these guys, are just walking home one night and they get robbed and they mm-hmm. get shot in the robbery, or they get hit in the crossfire as a bystander. So. You know, there is this kind of perception that this large chunk of people who are getting shot in urban poor communities must have been doing something to get themselves shot, that they must be in gangs or drug dealing. And that that happens, but it doesn't happen as often as people think. Mm-hmm. There's there's a sizable population of people who are just there. And, you know, bullets during active shooting situations can ricochet, they can you know, people are often shooting wildly and they hit somebody else. So there's a lot of different variables that kind of shape a person's risks of getting shot. Mm-hmm. Well, that obviously makes uh, makes the research itself complicated, uh, I assume. And, and, and plausibly, this this features as, um, you know, one of the the possible reasons that there is less research in this particular field of, of um, you know, gun gun injuries that aren't fatal, that, that, that there's less um, federal or state monies or impetus to study this particular cohort because of a kind of, uh, I don't know if it's even subtle, but a bias uh, towards uh, the deserving, you know, bad actor getting shot. Yeah, I think so. And I think it, you know, like, I don't know if there's ever been sort of like an explicit statement about that. Um, like nobody's ever come out and said, this is why we won't fund this kind of research. Um, but I think that there is this underlying presumption that um, some people's lives don't matter as much, um, particularly if, you know, there's this kind of racial bias. Um, you know, who's getting shot? Well, it tends to be poor African-American men. Um and they're getting shot in cities that are parts of cities that are seen as, you know, troubled areas with gang violence and drug dealing. And so there is this belief that, uh, you know, these are people who, you know, while tragic, um, were, had a hand in sort of shaping their own fate. And so there's, I think there's less of a moral impetus to try and, um, solve this issue. Now, the other thing I think, and, you know, the NRA, has played a big part in that as well. Uh, up until recently, they've been able to lobby members of Congress to block funding to the CDC, which you know historically had uh, previously funded studies that would look into you know successful interventions in these communities where we see a higher rate of gun violence, both fatal and non-fatal. So, I think it's a combination of those two things. This is Interchange on WFHB. Our guest is Ju Young Lee, an ethnographer at the University of Toronto, who studies the radical effects of gunshots on bodies and lives. He describes the role of structural violence in impoverished black communities. So, for future reference, remember, it's alright to like or want a material item, but when you fall in love with it and you start scheming and carrying on for it, just remember... 
this is a good place, I think, to bring in the idea of structural violence. You know, the idea that this, this like many other issues in the African-American community, seems to be constructed. And largely, those of us who might also call it constructed to a purpose. Um, but uh, give us a little sense of what structural violence means or, or the way in which this is a structural situation as much as uh, trying to call up on individual moralistic, uh, you know, accountability questions. Sure. Yeah. So structural violence is a, a theoretical framework that I use a lot in my work. And um, there's a medical anthropologist named Paul Farmer who uses it a lot when he's explaining like the AIDS epidemic in places like Haiti. And it's basically a challenge to the belief in, I think you could say behavioral economics and also in certain strands of health research, which is this belief that uh, culture and individual behaviors are the causes of bad outcomes and of health disparities. And so the presumption there being that if we can just change people's cultural beliefs and attitudes and we can just you know, teach them new ways of behaving in the world, that these problems will go away. Um, and I use that lens because that's often one of the underlying and not so subtle implications of people's perceptions of these communities that there's this idea that if we could just you know get people out of gangs or teach them that you know gang gang life and drug dealing is not the way um, then perhaps we could you know have it make a dance on the rates of shootings and it's not it's not necessarily to say that there aren't some benefits to these kinds of approaches of teaching individuals how to do stuff differently um, but the idea of structural violence is that all of these attempts at changing individual behaviors and attitudes are are very limited and constrained in a way because they're not addressing larger structural issues that are um, also shaping how people think and act in the world. Right. And so a structural violence approach to gun violence would say, well, we know that these shootings are not randomly distributed. They're happening in urban, poor, black communities by and large. And so what could we do that would reduce collectively the risk factors for everyone? And we could start by saying, well, these are places where the poverty rate is higher. These are places where um, the you know families that have um, parents that are have been incarcerated. These are also places where um, young people are not graduating high school as often, and they're not going on to get a, an education. And so the opportunity structure is closed to them, which you know is a, a powerful motivator to get involved in activities that could um, you know that could in, in, increase their risks of being either an offender or a victim, or just you know collectively being surrounded by. Um, people who are doing that. And so, you know, these kinds of risks are contagious in a sense. So I think the structural violence perspective really keys us, keys us into this idea that if we really want to end the, the kind of trauma we see in these communities, then we need to address these underlying structural issues. Well, that's important to, you know, when you talk about structural violence that we're, <clears throat> excuse me, that we're not, we're not saying the violence 
we're not like pointing to the actual violence of gun violence or um, you know criminal yeah, criminal activity things like that as the violence within the structure but saying that the structure itself is violent or or promotes the violence or is the violence upon those bodies within those structures that the structure itself is perpetuating the violence yes exactly and i think um, the way I explain it to my students is that um, structural violence doesn't necessarily get rid of the notion of agency. It's not as if that the structure is determining what everybody does. But when you live in these places and you know, you're faced with the choice of do I want to try and get a job at, you know, in the service sector, uh, which you know, doesn't even pay a livable wage in many cities – or do I want to go hustle on the block? And I know people who are hustling who can buy like nice things and who can make tons of money in an afternoon. What would I do? And the choice is very rational in a sense. Like, it, you know, even if there's more risks that come with being a drug dealer, um, when you're faced with those kinds of structural constraints and those limited opportunities, uh, you can begin to at least understand why some people would go into the riskier route mm -hmm. um, because it makes more financial sense, at least if everything goes well. Mm -hmm. So I think I try to present it as a, a way of understanding constraints around agency. So mm -hmm. you know, people are not just sort of acting freely in the world that they have these um, you know, larger structures that are, that, that are um, sort of constraining their options and, and, and changing the ways that they would think you know, about things. That's why, man, I be telling you all the time, man, you know, love, that word love is a very serious thing. And if you it's time for another break. This is Love's Gonna Getcha by Boogie Down Productions from the 1990 album Edutainment. When we return to Interchange, we talk about the rational calculus of participating in gun violence. Stay with us. So for all the people out there that fall in love with material items, we're going to bump the beat a little something like this. I'm in junior high with a B-plus grade. At the end of the day, I don't hit the arcade. I walk from school to my mom's apartment. I got to tell the suckers every day, don't start it. Because where I'm at, if you're soft, you're lost. To stay on course means to roll with force. A boy named Rob is chilling in a Benz in front of my building with the rest of his friends. Back to Interchange on WFHB. This is the finale of our series, A Targeted Divide, about guns in the USA. Today's show is What Bullets Do to Bodies and Lives, and Ju Young Lee is our guest. In this segment, we talk about the lack of economic opportunity available to young men in black communities and how that lack 
paired with cultural factors that promote and romanticize gun violence makes gang life and crime far more appealing than service sector work. You fall in love with your chain. You fall in love with your car. Love is going to sneak right up and snuff you from behind. So I want you to check the story out as we go down the line. Line. Yeah, it's um, uh, it is important. You know, we we're we're trying to focus here on a particular way in which guns affect lives. But the the points that are are clear throughout your work is is that it is a structural thing to have to confront, and that we need to confront that as much as anything else to make it clear that you know through things like redlining and in in districts, you know, making uh, ghettos uh, in in cities uh, to you know that this is a creation of this kind of um, social organization. There's just no way around the fact that it's a construct of our society that we've made places that are impoverished. We've made places that that uh, that sort of create violent responses to, as you say, a lack of opportunity structures, to a lack of even dignity. Like you talk about trying to find a, a fine work that pays any money, you, you're you stuck in a service sector, you're stuck in serving other people, often stuck in a uh, a job that is about cleaning or, you know, things of this nature where, where humans don't feel a sense of dignity or um, value within their communities. Yeah, and you you definitely highlight another important part of the the calculus that goes into figuring out what path you want to take as a young person. And uh, you know, it's not just people looking at the the kind of economics of these decisions. There's also the symbolic, you know, rewards that come with being, you know, a successful or, you know, at least ostensibly successful hustler versus being someone who works in the service sector. Um, one is cool and the other is not, you know, (laughs) and there's, there's a lot of, you know, there's, there's a ton of this stuff that kind of gets lost because we, we, we think about just the economics Mm -hmm. of it, but, you know, young people, especially when they're coming of age and they're, you know, you know, trying to figure out who they're going to be in the world, they're grappling with my, their identities. Um, this is also a big reason, uh, another kind of pull that pulls young people into gangs, mm-hmm. that pulls them into drug dealing. Um, you know, so there's a lot of stuff that kind of misses over that fact that there's also this cool factor that right. goes with being a hustler or a gangster. Yeah, you'd even argue that that's part of the structural intention, right? Now we have entertainments that are that continue to make this particular lifestyle as cool as possible, the only way to get out or the best way to get out, the 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 value of that kind of cr- street cred, things of that nature. So we continue to sort of promote this idea within these communities that are just decimated, you know, that are just burnt out uh, shells of of places to live. Yeah, definitely. So there's multiple kind of inputs. It's not just, uh, you know, people's sort of peer group that are influencing them. As you alluded to, there's a whole industry of representations Mm -hmm. that sort of reinforce this, whether explicitly or implicitly. Um, You know, there are skits that kind of like, you know, I think back to this one Dave Chappelle skit where, um, you know, he plays a guy who's working at the – like a, a parody version of McDonald's and sort of trying to make his way, but you know he gets no respect in the hood because he's you know working at this McDonald's. So yeah, this this mm-hmm. this 
this idea of what is the preferred path is being reinforced in multiple directions. Right, right. First the guns rise and you know something's happening. Then darkness falls and... This is Interchange on WFHB. Our guest is ethnographer Ju Young Lee for our final show in our gun series, A Targeted Divide. We're discussing the effects of bullets on bodies, specifically hollow point bullets. Good evening, my name's Mr. Bullet. I respond to the index when you pull it. The trigger, so make a note, take a vote. Quick, man. Let's switch a little bit here and, and try to look at the effects of the bullet, right? So um, uh, generally, uh, you know, I, I, I haven't seen anyone been shot or, or been even around trauma centers to know what that looks like. But uh, it's been a far more uh, prevalent in the media now as well, the effects of bullets and how bullets make radical changes in your body and your lifestyle. So uh, tell us a little bit about how they can enter in one place and end up in another and do lots of damage damage in between they don't they don't often just follow a straight path yeah exactly so that's another thing that we sort of miss out in the uh the hollywood representation of shootings there's this idea that the bullet goes in one place and comes out the other and you have this like hole in your body that they like patch up and that you get better but um you know many of the people who I spent time with in philadelphia lived with retained bullets that the bullet actually stays in the body and, you know, not only does it stay in the body, but once it enters into one point in the entry wound, uh, sometimes the bullet bounces around in the body, moves around, it hits internal organs, it rips through connective tissues, it shatters through bones. Um, these projectiles, you know, bullets are fired very quickly out of a firearm. And it, this, this process of injury is made even worse by the, the rise of hollow point bullets. So hollow point bullets in the last like 10, 20 years have become increasingly popular amongst civilians. And that, that part of the industry has grown considerably. And the idea of the hollow point bullet is that it's designed to explode upon impact. Mm. So the bullet goes into the body and it explodes into this sort of like flower-like shape where it, it's uh, – the bullet kind of explodes – turns out in the, – the inside of the bullet turns outwards. Mm. And um, it, one, inc increases the, the size of damage uh, uh, that the bullet leaves and two, the, the kind of shards that come off of that, the mm -hmm. – you know, uh, the bullet end up getting caught on tissues and it becomes an irritant. It cause, it's a cause of nerve damage. Of chronic pain, mm. um, yeah, and there's there's tons of terrible things that happen, and, and psychologically as well. So this is all the physical symptoms of a retained bullet, but psychologically, people hate having retained bullets in their bodies. Mm -hmm. There's a feeling that you can't get past the trauma when you have this, you know, bump sticking in your body, or you have you can feel the actual bullet grating into your bone. Um, so there's always these sort of like physical reminders and that those also make it very difficult for people to move on. Hmm. Well, it sounds almost as if hollow points are designed to cause more trauma to the living, that the bullet will actually just be the, the thing that continues to get infected or that continues to stick around and make life hell for whoever got shot after the fact. Yeah, definitely. And the, the curious thing about hollow point bullets is that they're often marketed as a safer alternative to the regular bullets, which are the full metal jacket, the bullets that have a round top. Um, the idea is that the, those bullets 
often can penetrate and exit objects so they can go through walls, they can go through, you know, bodies. Um, mm-hmm. But the hollow point bullet is often marketed as a safer alternative because it'll get stuck in whatever object it hits. Mm. Uh, but that idea only works if we go on the assumption that people don't miss when they're shooting. <laughs> Right. Oh, yeah. It's a big assumption. Obviously, people miss all the time. That's probably the biggest thing that happens. Exactly. So people are very inaccurate. And, you know, when they get shot with a hollow point bullet, I mean, you you said it, you know, you captured it. Their life is a living hell. They're in constant pain. They, They have this object that's stuck in them that, you know, is a reminder of their near death experience. And, yeah, I mean, the people that I followed just had a number of different problems. One of the guys that I write about, in fact, this guy who I call Marlon in my, my new book, uh, was shot and the bullet shattered his femur. Mm. Uh, and he had just tremendous health difficulties after the fact. He he couldn't walk for about a year. He had to wear a cast that would allow the sh- the broken shards of his femur bone to set in sort of a quasi-straight line. Um, it never really grew back the right way. And, you know, in that year, he, he gained a lot of weight. He developed um, slip discs in his back. He had sleep apnea. He was depressed. He had, uh, you know, arthritis in his hips and knees. And this is a guy in his 20s. Um, and then, you know, after all was said and done, he also developed diabetes. Um, so, you know, the shooting and the injuries that he experienced really were just the, the start of this downward spiral in his health. First the gun drops and you know something's happening. Then darkness falls and falls. It's time for a break. This is When the Gun Draws by Pharaoh Monch from the 2007 album Desire. When we return, yes, the bullet changes the body but it also changes the self or sense of identity. Stay with us. White man made me venom to eliminate Especially when I'm in the hood, I never discriminate Just get in them, then I renovate Flesh bone, ain't nothing for me to penetrate And it can happen so swiftly One false move just might shift me If I'm enlarged and your soul's not claimed I will remind that ass when it's about to rain like First the gun draws and you know Something's happening Then darkness falls and oh Arson of fire bombs The cost of a single bullet was more than the firearm Strange that is When all exits are final Point blank Range that is My attitude is cold and callous Kill kings in Tennessee Presidents in Dallas And if the past be known Welcome back I'm Doug Storm on Interchange This is episode 3 of A Targeted Divide Our series of programs on guns in the U.S. Today, Ju Young Lee talks with us about the effects of bullets on survivors of gunshot victims. In this segment, how being wounded and being seen as a wounded person changes self-perception and community perception. Tough guys in public become shells of their former selves in private. First the gun draws and you know 
things you write about quite a bit is the way the bullet changes the person not just physically but we you know you talk about the psychological effects needing to get the bullet out of you but uh but there is you know there is the thing you are a body that has been shot and not only does uh the change in your physical attributes or the ability to uh, even uh move as you say getting arthritis and, and not being able to walk or if you get an uh, abdominal wound the fact that it's it's likely you'll be having uh, perhaps a colostomy bag or just having so many difficult issues with just navigating day the day from getting out of bed to to using the bathroom that that your life will be from then on altered and that alters people also their who they are who they think of themselves so tell us a little bit about that yeah definitely so there's also this you know pretty radical transformation in the identity of these victims and uh, this was one of the most interesting things that I was documenting early on in my study, which were, um, you know, the ways that being injured and being seen as a wounded person would not only change how people thought of themselves, but how others thought of them. And it wasn't as if there was sort of like a standard transformation. Um, this was all dependent on the context that they were in. And so there were people who, for example, would get shot and when news got around to their friends and people who knew them from the neighborhood, when news got around that they had survived, they would experience this sort of um, hero's welcome when they came home. Mm-hmm. That people would see them as somebody who was exceptionally resilient and tough, and they would treat them um, as somebody to be revered, as a person who was hard to kill, who who was hard and was streetwise. Mm-hmm. Um and but on the same note, these same people, you know, when they were, you know, in other kinds of interactions, sometimes with loved ones like romantic partners or people who saw them, um, you know, behind closed doors, just dealing with the everyday things that people go through. Um, they often had a very different kind of experience where people would see the fact that they were a shell of their former selves, mm-hmm. the fact that. You know, like you mentioned colostomy bags. There was a guy I, I write about who, who I call Winston, who, you know, had multiple ch- difficulties with the colostomy bag. Winston was this guy who I met pretty early on in my study, and he ended up becoming one of the, the key informants that I would spend the most time with outside of the hospital. Mm-hmm. And um, Winston was this guy who he got shot in an armed robbery. And this was a very common theme in Philadelphia, which is a walking city. It's a city where, you know, it's it's an older city. It's pretty small geographically, at least in the downtown core. And, you know, people would walk around a lot. And, uh, you know, the there were quite a few people who were getting robbed in various neighborhoods of Philadelphia. And he got shot in this shooting, and one of the bullets went through his torso and on the, on the way out, the bullet exited his body. It ripped through his intestines and it even hit his pancreas. So he had uh, – most of his pancreas was pulverized by mm. the bullet. Um, he ba- basically barely survived and after being in a coma for a couple of weeks, woke up in the hospital 
and realized that he had this um, this this colostomy bag connected to his stomach, and that he also had um, this protruding hernia. Mm-hmm. And for you know, I don't know the exact origins of this this procedure, but basically, trauma doctors, trauma surgeons have figured out that one, the most important thing when a person gets shot and they're bleeding out is that they have to control the bleeding. That that's they have to control the bleeding, they have to control the body temperature, and that your chances of saving a person's life go up dramatically if you can control their vitals. And so um, one of the things that they've developed is known as this open technique where they, they cut you open and they remove um, you know, any kinds of you know, tissues that have been messed up or in his case, in, in parts of his intestine that were pulverized. And they, they leave you open and they cover the intestines with a skin graft taken from the legs. Uh, and so they take uh, layers of skin off of your legs and they create this little pouch that sort of keeps your intestines in, but they haven't closed you yet. So if you can imagine, it's sort of sh- it, it almost looks like a football, like a small uh, football sticking outside of your stomach because basically, you know, they've cut through the abdominal wall and all of your, your, your stuff inside of your body are, are outside of your body. No respect, no manners. It's Mad Max, multiple mats, mad banana This is Interchange on WFHB. Our guest, Ju Young Lee, discusses one of his research subjects, Winston, who lived with the trauma of having a colostomy bag after being shot and how gangster rap often romanticizes gun violence. Peace, but you ain't got a pacifist. Spit it like Jesus to Nazareth and emphatically clap. So he lived with this, um, this, this protruding hernia for almost a year and experienced all kinds of different, you know, shameful moments with it. Like there were, when he would chew and eat his food, the, the hernia would grow and, you know, he, he would describe the experience um, and say, like, you know, have you ever seen the movie Alien or Aliens mm-hmm. with Sigourney Weaver? And would say, I felt like that. I felt like I had this, like, w- this thing growing out of me whenever I would eat. Or if I had gas, I, this thing would grow out of him. And he had this experience where people would see him walking around and sometimes he would forget to put this little gauze around his stomach that would keep the hernia down. Mm-hmm. Um and people would call him, uh, they would say that he looked like he was pregnant, mm-hmm. uh, you know, which was very humiliating for a guy, you know, a young man to, to walk around. And, you know, that did, that really damaged his masculinity and his sense of self. Um, but he, in addition to this hernia, he also had problems with the colostomy bag. And so, um, you know, he wasn't, you know, for many people who get shot in the abdomen who suffer trauma to the intestines and the stomach, uh, for a while live with a colostomy bag and he had problems where the colostomy bag would fall off and you know all kinds of terrible things would happen where uh, like the, the the fecal matter inside of the colostomy bag would spill sometimes when he was in public um, and you know that's the, the site to which the colostomy bag was attached would sometimes get infected um, he just had tons of different issues with that. And he, so he felt very dirty and ashamed mm-hmm. of his body as a result. And it, it really changed the ways that, you know, people saw him and how he saw himself. I think that earlier you mentioned the, uh, the idea of, of 
kind of getting shot and having some some um, some street cred for that or some some sort of praise that you know you survived and you're tough. You get a sense that that's also simply a, a kind of a holdover or, or carryover from from Hollywood. Also, that there's that that's praised in those films as well. That but the reality is so viscerally different that it has to be a representation, not not a, like a truth of your toughness or resilience. Yeah, I do. Definitely. And I, I think that in my first study, for example, there is a template in place in the music industry with gangster rap where mm-hmm. um, after Flawless got shot, when he first came back to the open mic, people would joke with him and say, you know, oh, you know, 50 Cent got shot, Tupac got shot. And now, you know, you have that requisite injury to to kind of boost your street cred and boost your career. Um, and so I saw that as a commentary on kind of the, how the popular music industries, you know, almost incentivize, you know, living through a gunshot wound because it, it makes you seem harder than the next person. Um, so, and I think a lot of times people say these things and they, 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 they kind of praise a person who survived a shooting also because this is another way of coping with the reality of living in a place where, you know, many of the people you know have been killed or they have been shot or mm-hmm. you have been personally victimized. That um, if you were to really, you know, acknowledge the gravity of gun violence in these communities, um, it would be almost too difficult to bear yeah. the, the, the reality. And so I think that there's within this, there is a, a kind of coping mechanism that people try to make the best out of a, a very terrible situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's also at play in, in these kinds of accounts of praise. My brain's a clock clip, but lane's be on some one eight hundred cotton shot. It's time for a break. Here's another from Pharaoh Munch. This is Clap One Day, off of the 2011 album WAR, We Are Renegades. When we come back, how our healthcare institutions fail the demographic that suffers the most from gun violence. More with ethnographer Ju Young Lee when interchange returns. We went from niggas to porch monkeys, the Negroes, the blacks, back to niggas again. Yet niggas are still hungry. Abolish the N-word, the plan's so corny. My homeland security cams are all on me. They watch through the fiber optics. It dawned on me that cops could just run in your spot quick without warning. They educate the masses to follow is so boring. I sat in the back of the class and sleep snoring. And they asked me why I'm vocal and animate. Cause I lost my focus like Governor Patterson In the ghetto it's impossible to escape And the first obstacle is the state worm in my abdomen Spear chuck a f*** that I tore javelins and $5,000 bills in the face of James Madison This is an American post-mortem To focus on your bogus Nova Soto Storm and clap Say we were gonna Say we were gonna get it together Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. You're listening to a special 90-minute finale to our series, A Targeted Divide, about guns in the U.S. Ju Young Lee is our guest, and our topic is the effects of bullets on bodies. In this segment, we talk about the ways healthcare is almost non-existent for the victims and sufferers of gun violence. No respect, no manners. It's Mad Max, multiple 
bad banana clips. A black hammer that hits the back of a black talent. A slew of hollow tip through the wall of your blue silence. It's selective theatrics, collective dramatics. I'm systematically pissed, clap automatics Well, me or I'll be Jamal, maybe I'm Pispasatic P's a fanatic for peace, but you ain't got a pacifist Spit it like Jesus and Nazareth and emphatically clap At any obstacle, an impossible feat to fathom It's not logical, but chronicles the thoughts of the people Cause one day we gon' clap Let's shift into how how gunshot victims deal with hospitals and health insurance and the institutions that we uh, suppose will will take care of us or help us um, recover and rehabilitate. It's it's actually not likely that you'll get much help after the emergency room visit. Certainly, if you don't have any health insurance. Yeah, exactly. So that's something that I noticed right away, which is which was that the vast majority of the people who I met were um, either on Medicaid or they had no health insurance whatsoever. They were part of this sort of precarious population of working poor folks who, you know, would work as like a bar back or like as a line cook in the service industries or would work at a cell phone store, um, and you know they would work. From you know basically minimum wage jobs and their employers didn't have you know extensive health insurance coverage. So um, after being saved by these trauma doctors, uh, they were left to fend for themselves. And there's there's not a lot of work on this, but the work that does exist, which is typically based in like one hospital setting, or mm-hmm. um, and they they do kind of an audit of. Who are the victims coming in? They find, not surprisingly, that the vast majority are are not insured. And so that what that means is that after they've been saved, um, they don't have access to the long-term rehabilitative care that is so important to, you know, just learning how to reuse their bodies, like learning how to, you know, be able to use their hands and limbs again if they've been injured there, or or you know not having access to, you know, a a long-term psychotherapist or a counselor Mm -hmm. who can help you, you know, grapple with the, you know, the fallout of this because it's also very traumatic and people live with the symptoms of post-traumatic stress. So these are, these people are very, they're, they're wounded in all senses of the word. And, uh, you know, that was the hardest thing for me as an ethnographer is to see how much people were struggling and how, how little existed for them in the world of healthcare and, and help. Mm-hmm. Well, you've got a piece uh, called The Pill Hustle that was in uh, um, uh, a journal, and uh, you, you detail in that piece the, the life of a man you call Paul, uh, who has to struggle after, after his own shooting and a very uh, r- ridiculous shooting uh, uh, and having to try to get his life back after that and just the ways in which uh, after not being able to secure continuing pain medication medication, having to, you know, hustle for it on the street himself and then having to find ways to to create social relationships that would get him the pain medication he needed. Yeah. And his experience wasn't, um, he, he wasn't an outlier per se. I just used his story because I spent a lot of time with him. But mm-hmm. yeah, basically, you know, Paul's story was he got shot by his roommate. They had a long going, like a long term ongoing conflict with each other he had been laid on rent and he was shot in a very brutal execution style shooting um he survived it and 
you know, in the aftermath, he had had permanent nerve damage to one of his hands. So he was unable to actually like make straighten out some of his fingers because the bullet had gone through his shoulder and damaged the nerves, the nerve endings in his, in his fingers. And, you know, Paul was in a lot of pain. Um, you know, he would talk about how when the weather changed, he also had a retained bullet. When the weather changed, he, the pain would really intensify, whether that was like the summer months or the, the winter months. Like seasonal changes are very tough for gunshot victims, particularly those who have uh, retained bullets and that kind of thing. So he was in a lot of pain. He was also psychologically in a lot of pain. He was having nightmares. He could barely sleep. Um, that's another thing that gunshot victims experience, like radical disruptions in sleep, which is, you know, in many ways, the foundations of health. Mm-hmm. Like they, these are people who have, you know, very vivid and scary nightmares where they are thrust back into the moment where they thought they're going to die. Um, you know, anyway, so he, he suffered greatly in the aftermath and I was with him when he was asking, uh, a physician to, to kind of, you know, if he could get a refill on his, uh, Percocet, you know, one of these strong opioids out there. Um, and the physician, you know, recommended that he, he try taking over the counter pain medications, uh, which he had done before and which he said that, you know, were not helping ease the pain so that he could sleep. Um, and, you know, there are good reasons for this. You know, doctors are, are worried that they may be contributing to the trafficking and diversion of opioids on the streets. And there are many are very, like, hesitant to continue because, again, prescription opioids are not necessarily a long-term solution to pain. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Ethnographer Ju Young Lee discusses the moralism of healthcare providers who might think of the average gunshot victim as undeserving of long-term care. See when the system gets you down, you got to just we got to just we got to just Yeah, you also point to the again the possible moralism that goes on in that environment as well. Yeah, and I think that this is a very subtle thing. It's not something that is ever really explicit per se, but healthcare providers themselves, um, you know, and I empathize a lot with what they do, but um, many of them also have these perceptions of young black men in parts, in, in cities like Philadelphia, and they see sometimes the same people coming back over time. And there's this perception that they must be up to something. And so there is this kind of feeling that, you know, I'm doing this work pro bono. Um, and this person is maybe just going to go out there again and, and, and get involved in stuff that's going to end them back here or maybe even worse in the morgue. Um, so I think that at a very subtle level, there is this b- belief or there is this perception of, you know, the, the average gunshot victim as somebody who might not be deserving of long-term care mm-hmm, mm-hmm. even deserving of the suffering yeah perhaps i mean i, I don't want to put that on mm-hmm, any mm-hmm. individual per se but it's something that uh definitely comes through in the ways that they uh interact with people that i've seen at least mm-hmm, mm-hmm. now uh you you go further with paul and say you know uh, that as as that happened to paul and he was unable to get medication he turned to a couple of obviously ways he thought were possible to get it. This is a street hustle or you call it a pill hustle, but uh, also, you know, making, uh, I guess, friends with uh, with Cheryl, I think was her name as well, and, and yes. sort of creating a, a symbiotic relationship of that need. 
Yeah. So Paul was very savvy in a sense. He, um, when he didn't get it, didn't get access through his doctor, he was, was able to find different people in his life um, who could get him these pills. And if you go into, you know, a place like Philadelphia and many of these neighborhoods, uh, in, in many neighborhoods, you can get Percocet informally from drug dealers. It's you know, pharmaceutical drugs have become an extremely popular item on the streets. Um, and so he, he got them sometimes through people who are just selling other drugs. Um, he got it through, as you alluded to, a woman that he befriended who had a long-term prescription to Percocet or was able to get Percocet and, you know, arranged to basically become her sort of, you know, they, they, they became friends with benefits in a sense where he was sleeping with her periodically and in exchange she would kind of give him uh, various pain medications that she came across. And this ended up working for a while for him, um, but it ended up also leading to this um, other kind of traumatic situation where Cheryl's boyfriend or ex-boyfriend, it was never really clear to me, you know, the nature of her ongoing relationship with this other guy, um, came to the, her apartment one time after finding out that she had been sleeping with this guy, Paul, and, um, you know, he had pulled his gun on Paul, threatening to shoot him. Um, so, you know, all of this kind of, to me, showed me that this situation, this the, the healthcare system and the the lack of safety nets that exist for non-fatal victims like Paul, ends up cycling these same people back into situations that are one very risky uh, for their safety and health, but two also put them at risk of being arrested and incarcerated. So, I felt like there was you know again the structural violence. There were a lack of good options in front of somebody like Paul who. At the end of the day, most gunshot victims just want to get their life back. They just want to be able to work. They want to be able to go out and live their lives, have fun with their friends. They want to be able to have a romantic life. Uh, they want to resume life as usual. Mm -hmm. um, and so without a strong rehabilitative care system in place, many are left to fend for themselves like Paul. And then they turn to the most expedient and not necessarily the best methods, which is like trying to self-medicate with very powerful and addictive opioids. This is our final break. Our song is Stand Your Ground by Pharaoh Monch, off of the 2014 album PTSD. Stay with us for more of What Bullets Do to Bodies and Lives on Energy. See when the system gets you down, you got to just stand. You got to just stand. You got to just stand. You got to stand. I am just one man, but I know my power. It's the final call, when the final hour, and we must not divide, as we must sort our future. Who are they to decide when they conspire to shoot you? Ah, that could have been my mother. Oh, that could have been my brother. Show as we circle the sun and the earth revolves. Uh, get involved, get involved, get involved, get involved. Patriotic, but I learned in life, truth it must be slated. 
Back to Interchange. Our guest is Ju Young Lee, author of Blowing Up, Rap Dreams in South Central, who's working on a new ethnography based on his research in Philadelphia about the effects of bullets on bodies and lives. In our final segment, we'll confront the paradox of gun control in communities beset by gun violence, who feel not only that the police cannot protect them, but that they are in danger from those same police. Well, uh, so you understand from from the, I guess, the media perspective or the liberal perspective or the um, the white uh, outside of this community perspective, where you suggest that um, that there's structural violence and and what to do about it from within that particular structural violence from within that. That situation. Did you talk much about or hear from your respondents about gun violence and gun laws and gun rights and protection and policing? You know, all the things that that sort of happen outside of that community, where where the rest of us perhaps safely outside of those communities comment upon those communities uh, have these kinds of conversations. Are those conversations happening from within that community as well? Sure, definitely. That's a that's a big one, and it's it's an interesting conversation I had with many people. And I I was always struck by people's comments on guns. So on one hand, you know, whenever I would talk to these victims in the hospital, uh, a good number of them would say things like, you know, one of the big problems is that there are too many guns on the streets. It's way too easy for people to get guns. And they would say – they would even go so far sometimes to say, you know, my solution would be just get rid of the guns. Um, but in the same breath or in the later on in the same interactions, they would also say things that would complicate this vision. They would say things like, well, you know, one of the problems and why people will have guns is because they don't trust the police. They don't believe that the police will be there um, when, you know, you, you, you really need them to be there. And so that's why people have guns. Um, and then some of them would even go so far as to say, you know, after getting shot, I've, I really want to get a gun now. I want to get a firearm to protect myself and protect my family. And so there is this sort of like conflicting view and, you know, this very paradoxical view of firearms. One hand, you know, they, they sort of chalk up their injuries and, and their, their trauma to the fact that, you know, lots of people have guns and it's very easy to get one. Um, and, but on the same note, they would also say, you know, maybe I want one because I feel unsafe. And I think that that kind of maps on to a lot of the stuff we know about why people in general want to own firearms, that there's this uh, underlying fear of violent crime and this simultaneous uh, skepticism uh, about the police's efficacy. And, you know, this is, I think, especially true for you know, African-American urban communities where, you know, we're seeing a number of incidents where police exercise, you know, non-fatal and fatal violence against, you know, people who are unarmed. So I think that 
yeah, this was one of the most fascinating parts of my study in a sense because people seem very torn about firearms in their in their lives. Yeah, it's it's um it is a struggle and and I think some somewhat troubling to imagine these particular um victim cohorts, right? So that uh you could say that uh, women in particular are uh harmed by gun violence in the you know in the space that we imagine is their their space of protection right in the home the domestic violence happens mm-hmm. in the home women are shot with guns by their partners or ex-partners uh so within that 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 structural violence is it guns become a part of a larger problem there as well and then within this community as well the the community itself understands that the guns are a part of the problem but it has no other recourse to the mm-hmm. problem <laughs> there's no other way to fix the problem in 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 many ways don't let your demons take you to hell introduce them this is doug storm on interchange ju young lee discusses the bogeyman of the violent criminal as nra propaganda in philadelphia the perceived threat to the black community is police violence How do we confront the kind of NRA perspective that has this sense that you need to protect yourself from the violent criminal, but the violent criminal is protecting himself from the violent criminals too? Right? Yeah. So you know, but but just saying violent criminal means nothing. You know, it's no. it's a narration of a bogeyman. Yeah, exactly. And I think that the you know sometimes the bogeyman is also the police. Right. This, right. You know, when I when I when things go awry in my neighborhood, and when I'm uh, fearful for my life, um, I feel like I can trust the police. But you know, you have to remember that Philadelphia, you know, has a history with police and policing. Mm-hmm. There is like a, a deep seated distrust of the cops. And you know, in the '80s, when the Move activists were firebombed by the police, I mean, this was the police dropping bombs right. on. A black community not too far from the University of Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. So that memory, you know, lives on in the in the minds of people, and then they they have access to all of the different things that everyone has access to. They have social media, and they see right. Michael Brown being shot by police and being unarmed. They see Tamir Rice, you know, being shot mm-hmm. holding a toy gun. So, you know, these these images and messages are sort of reinforced in everyday life, and. You know, they just don't have a great rapport a lot of times with police. And this is not to say, again, that police don't, you know, police are often, you know, these unsung heroes. They, they arrest people who are doing bad things in these communities. Um, but a lot of times those kinds of mundane interactions where things are okay with the police are, aren't necessarily in the foreground of how people think of them. Like mm-hmm. they, they remember times where they were pulled over or they remember times when their friend was arrested under false pretense and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Well, how, how do you, uh, Ju Young, uh, think about the problem of guns in the country? You know, after doing the work you've been doing and seeing the ways in which it is uh, almost, I guess, I think it's fair to call it an epidemic of uh, even a, a kind of illness or virus, right? It's, a, it's, it's as bad as cancer in some sense, right? So how, how is it that we uh, treat this particular disease? Yeah, for sure. I mean, 
So now that I live in Canada, I guess I could give a little comparative perspective. No, that'd be great. And mm-hmm. I think one thing that I've learned is that, uh, you know, one, I, I think that gun control laws in the U.S. Uh, should be revisited. And I think that there's really good empirical evidence overall that uh, a more robust background check system is at least a starting point um, that would help control the diversion of guns into illicit markets, into the hands of people who want to commit violence. Um, you know, Canada is a place where there's a waiting period, a federal law waiting period. There's also um, you have to take a safety class. You have to get um, a license to own a firearm that's renewed every five years. You have to get somebody to be your reference letter. Um, so there's just a number of like checks along the way that help control the flow of firearms. And the data that I've seen suggests that this stuff works. And the, sh- the gun homicide rate and non-fatal shooting rates are much lower here. Um than they are in the U.S. So I think that's important. But I also think, structurally speaking, if we weren't going to change anything about gun control laws, let's say that the kind of ongoing uh, polarization between gun control gun rights continues, which sadly has sort of been the narrative of Mm -hmm. this whole kind of conversation. If that doesn't change, I think we can still make a humongous impact on the rates of gun violence if we address the structural causes if we address urban poverty and you know you know communities of color in you know various cities mm-hmm. like baltimore like philly etc yeah that's the um, big that's the big question though right that's that's the thing that was constructed to be as it is in the first place right right i mean yeah. there there is an actual power base that constructed impoverished neighborhoods Right. Exactly. So it's easy for us. I mean, it's, it's an easy thing to say, make, you know, make people less poor and mm-hmm. there'll be less violence. That's an easy yeah. one. Yeah, it's an easy one to say and a harder <laughs> one to kind of implement. Um, but I do think that long term, that is the most kind of sustainable uh, means of reducing gun mm-hmm. violence is mm-hmm. to address that poverty and racism and in, in core institutions that shape, you know, people's life outcomes. Right. If we can, if we can change that, then, um, the gun rights discussion becomes less important. Right. But if you add accessible firearms into communities where you don't have opportunities, mm-hmm. that's a recipe for the kinds of stuff we're seeing, you know, saying the right things to mm-hmm. get elected. Well, thank you for your ethnographies. I, they are they were uh, eye-opening to me. Uh, so, Ju Young Lee, thanks for joining me on Interchange. Thank you for having me. Sometimes I have to That's our show. We'll close with Philadelphia artist Meek Mill. This is Heaven or Hell, off of the 2013 mixtape, Dream Chasers 3. Thanks to Ju Young Lee for his ethnographic work on the communities of those wounded by gunshots in Philadelphia. His book detailing this research is tentatively titled Ricochet. We hope you enjoyed our three-part series on guns in the USA. You can find the podcast for all the shows online at wfhb.org interchange. We're also available on iTunes and PRX. 
next time on Interchange. Bunuel's 1960 film La Joven, called The Young One, or White Trash in the United States. The movie was produced in Mexico and shot in English with American actors. It deals with issues of racism and rape within a complex portrayal of two men, each of whom shows traits of both good and evil. But it's the young one, a teen girl named Evie, that complicates our response as viewers. Boonwell's The Young One, next time on Interchange, Tuesdays at 6 p.m. on WFHB. Thanks for listening. I'm Doug Storm. I produced, edited, and mixed tonight's show. Robert Crouch co-produced our series, A Targeted Divide. Rob Schoon is assistant producer. Executive producer is Wes Martin. Stay tuned for the Jazz Menagerie, coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB. On the papers with a firm hold on his gun. Before I stitch the guy, I burn a hole in my tongue. Give me a hundred years in a hole on the sun. And boiling water, in the world of no order. In the hood of no loyalty, ain't no work for your daughter. Ain't a life for your brother, on a life for my mother. I'ma get the fan right, nigga, you damn right. Go to college, some niggas go to jail.